October 21st, 1978. While flying over the waters of the treacherous Bass Strait, located between the southeast tip of the Australian mainland and the island of Tasmania, a young pilot reports strange lights orbiting over his aircraft. With no other known aircraft in the area, the plot thickens when radio contact between him and air traffic control is suddenly lost, and with it, all trace of him and his aircraft are lost forever. What happened to the young man remains a mystery to this day, and as decades have passed, neckbeards the world over have argued with each other over the internet. Did an alien spaceship shoot down the aircraft? Or could there be a more terrestrial explanation for his disappearance? Investigators in the field, the wait is over. The long-anticipated return of Super Mystery Bros is finally here, bringing with it a brand new mystery. My name is Nate, and with me is my co-host, a man who plans on moving to New Orleans to become a shitty plastic bead tycoon, Ivan. And together, we're the Super Mystery Bros. Tonight, we're doing something special in order to get us in the zone for this mystery. Ivan, what is it? We are drinking VB. That's right, man. We ordered Australia's most iconic beer online, and we've been drinking that for the past several hours. This beer is scientifically proven to make the hair on the back of your head grow faster and thicker than the rest of the hair on your head. So contrary to popular belief, the mullet isn't actually a conscious hairstyle choice among Australians who drink VB. It's actually just a side effect of drinking VB. Ivan, what can people do to assist us in our cosmic journey into the land down under? As always, man. Guys, just leave us a rating, a review, preferably a positive one. And yeah, that would be nice to hear back from you. You know, guys, come on. Yeah. And also, if you're on Spotify, please hit the five star button if you enjoy us or even one star if you hate us. We don't even have enough reviews right now to have a score ranking at all. So if you could just be a lamb and rate the show on Spotify, we'd uh, we'd really fucking appreciate it, man. We just want to get on the board. So... Also, Apple Podcasts, we need rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts desperately because, believe it or not, almost nobody is listening to us through that app, and that would help us out a lot. So if you've got an iPhone or other Apple device, please go on there and leave us a rating and review. That's all we want for Christmas this year. All right, man, how can people get in contact with us? Oh, we've got an email, supermysterybros at gmail.com. God damn it. Are you doing this shit on purpose? I messed it up again. Are you doing it on purpose? <laughs> oh, yeah. And just by the way, uh, we were going to record this episode two weeks ago, but we just we got hit with COVID. And uh, yeah, we're, we're doing it. So anyway, yeah. Anyway, super mystery bros podcast at gmail.com, right? Super mystery bros podcast at gmail.com. And yeah. they can also leave us a voice message on the anchor.fm link in the episode description. All right, man, are you ready to get into this mystery? Let's get it started. So I just want to give a fair warning. This one could be a long one. 
Um, but I don't believe in two part episodes. So if it gets long, just pause the episode and come back and listen to the rest of it at another time. It's literally why God invented the pause button. All right, man, let's begin by talking a little bit about where this story all takes place. Australia, America's sun-scorched neighbor located on the opposite side of the planet. It's been called the Florida of the South Pacific, with the Aussie man being the closest genetic relative to the North American Florida man. Anthropologists are still searching for the missing link between the two, but some scientists theorize that there was a land bridge that connected the two during the last ice age. Well known for their national anthem being a men at work song, it's home to strange and dangerous creatures such as crocodiles, yaois, drop bears, bogans, eshes, and spiders so big that health meters hover over them. Even the sun is dangerous, as Australia has some of the world's highest exposure to UV rays, so much so that Australia is known to be home to some of the crispiest white people on the planet. Colloquially, Australia is known as being the place where everything is trying to kill you, including, but not limited to, extraterrestrial spacecraft. Tonight, we're gonna be talking about one of Australia's most enduring and legendary mysteries. A mystery so shocking that you might think twice about ever taking air travel in the Southern Hemisphere again. The disappearance of young pilot Frederick Valentich has become one of the most famous aviation-related mysteries in all of history, second only to possibly the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. On a calm spring evening in October of 1978, Frederick would rent a small Cessna, Cessna. Cessna. 182 aircraft from Moorabin Airfield in Melbourne, located in the southeast corner of Australia, fly southward toward King Island located in the Bass Strait, and disappear into the annals of myth and legend. Frederick Valentich was born on June 9, 1958, and as he reached adulthood, was determined to have a career in aviation. He had obtained his private pilot's license in September of 1977, and at the time of his disappearance, was studying part-time for his commercial license. However, he had a horrible track record when it came to the academic side of his studies. He had failed all five of his exam subjects, not once, but twice, and in the month before his disappearance, failed three more subjects. Previously, he had also been cited multiple, time for multiple times for violations, including twice for flying blindly into a cloud, for which he was threatened with prosecution, and on another occasion, he had received a warning for flying into restricted airspace. He had been rejected not once, but twice from the Royal Australian Air Force due to his inadequate education. To some, it seemed that Frederick was just not cut out to be a pilot, as if he was a square peg trying to jam himself into a round hole. Frederick was said to have been obsessed with the subject of UFOs and would consume films and articles regarding the subject on a regular basis. His father has stated that Frederick had seen an UFO himself earlier in the year of our Lord, 1978, in which an undefined object was moving away from him at a very high rate of speed. He had also expressed to his father his concern about what would happen if an UFO would attack him and his aircraft. This is what we in the business call foreshadowing. 
On October 21st, 1978, young Frederick Valentich rented a Cessna 182L small airplane from Moorabbin Airport located in Melbourne, the capital city in the state of Victoria, located in the southeast corner of Australia. As the sun was about to set into the beautiful Australian horizon, Frederick took off in his rented airplane at 6.19 p.m. on route to King Island, where he gave conflicting information about his reasons for making the journey. He told flight officials that he was going there to pick up some friends, while he told those close to him that he was actually going there to dine on some seafood. In typical Frederick fashion, he also neglected to inform King Island Airport of his intention to land there, which was against standard procedure. So I want to give just a slight geography lesson here for people who aren't familiar with the area we're talking about. So picture the southeast corner of Australia and Tasmania is just directly to the south. It's a large island about 150 miles off the coast of the mainland. And King Island lies somewhat in between the two. It's much smaller than Tasmania, but it's off the coast of Tasmania, kind of to the northwest of it. So the trip itself was approximately 130 nautical miles from Moorabbin Airport, directly to the southwest, and it was over open ocean. The journey itself was known to typically have difficult flying conditions, but on this night, the winds were calm and the sky was clear. From Moorabbin Airport, he would travel southwest towards Cape Otway, which is the closest point of land on the Australian mainland to King Island, before then making the jump across the water south-southeast towards King Island. The journey from Cape Otway to the nearest point of land on King Island is roughly 54 miles over open ocean. So um, just to provide some context, this route would be taken for safety reasons because minimizing your time over open water is much more preferred than taking a direct route and putting yourself in further danger by putting yourself over open ocean for longer than you need to be. So for one, it's much easier to navigate over land than it is to navigate over open water since navigating by land provides you with some visual landmarks um, that helps you navigate. And also if you run into mechanical trouble over open water, you're kind of fucked. So you want to minimize your time over open ocean. Frederick submitted his flight plan to the briefing officer at the airport at 5.20 p.m. for what was supposed to be a full reporting flight, which means that he was to check in by radio with air traffic control at certain checkpoints during his flight, for safety reasons. At 6.19pm, Frederick took off in his rented Cessna 182L alone, heading southwest towards Cape Aldway. The sun set at 6.48pm that day, and he radioed into the flight service at 7pm as he reached Cape Aldway and prepared for the next leg of his trip which was a turn towards south-southeast, heading in the direction of Keen Island, over the open ocean. Quote, Melbourne, Delta Sierra Juliet, now at Cape Outway, descending for King Island, end quote. He was quoted as saying over the radio, by this point he was exactly where he needed to be, and making perfect time. However, several witnesses at Apollo Bay which is directly to the northeast of Cape Outway, spotted Frederick's blue and white Cessna, making the turn prior to reaching Cape Outway, effectively cutting the corner and shortening his trip by about six miles. According to the fight plan he filed, Frederick was going to climb to 4,500 feet for his ocean crossing, as he made a left turn and headed towards King Island. His speed was approximately between 
110 and 120 miles per hour with a 10 mile per hour tailwind. At this speed he should have only been over the water for about half an hour or so. At 7, 6 p.m. Frederick radioed to the Melbourne Air Traffic Control. The following radio conversation takes place between 7, 6, 14 p.m. and 7, 12, 49 p.m. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known traffic. Delta Sierra Juliet, I am, seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. D Delta Sierra Juliet, what type of aircraft is it? Delta Sierra Juliet, I cannot affirm. It is four bright, it seems to me like landing lights. Delta Sierra Juliet? Melbourne, this is, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. The aircraft has just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. Delta Sierra Juliet, roger. And it, it is a large aircraft, confirm. Uh, unknown due to the speed it's traveling. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known aircraft in the vicinity. Melbourne, it's approaching now from due east towards me. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet, it seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times at a time at speeds I could not identify. Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger, what is your actual level? My level is four and a half thousand, four five zero zero. Delta Sierra Juliet, and confirm, you cannot identify the aircraft? Affirmative. Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger, stand by. Melbourne, Delta Sierra Juliet, it's not an aircraft. It. Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne, can you describe the uh, aircraft? Delta Sierra Juliet, as it's flying past, it's a long shape. Cannot identify more than that. It has such speed. It is before me right now, Melbourne. Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger. And how large would be the object be? Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. It seems like it's chasing me. What I'm doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me also. It's got a green light and sort of metallic-like. It's all shiny on the outside. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet. It's just vanished. Delta Sierra Juliet. Melbourne, would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is it a type of military aircraft? Delta Sierra Juliet, confirm the aircraft just vanished. Say again. Delta Sierra Juliet, is the aircraft still with you? Delta Sierra Juliet, it's uh, no, now approaching from the southwest. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet, the engine is is rough idling. I've got it at 23, 24, and the thing is coughing. Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger, what are your intentions? My intentions are uh, to go to King Island. Uh, Melbourne, that strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. It's hovering and it's not an aircraft. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. Frederick Valentich nor his aircraft were ever seen again. According to an article dated October 26, 1978 in the Lodi News Sentinel, a Federal Transport Department spokesman said, 
eight civil aircraft and an Air Force reconnaissance P-3 Orion plane has searched 1,000 square miles of ocean without success in locating the missing plane. The search was eventually called off on October 25th, lasting four days. The article also reported that during the during a 17-second sec segment of audio in which Valentich held down his microphone button without speaking, a metallic noise could be heard. So this confused me. What the fuck is a metallic noise? Can you produce one? I don't know what, what a metallic noise is. Is it like a like two pieces of metal slamming together or is it like scraping metal sound? I don't know what a metallic noise means. Yeah, it's kind of confusing. An oil slick was found 18 miles north of King Island, but analysis determined it was a ship fuel, not aviation fuel. Frederick Valentich has since been declared legally dead. No trace of him or his plane has ever been found. In 1983, a cow flap from the same type of Cessna aircraft was found washed ashore at Flinders Island, which is about 300 kilometers away from his last known position. However, a number of other Cessna aircraft of the same time had been reported as having lost a cowl flap in the general area. So, it was unable to be determined whether or not it had been the same aircraft. Alright, so folks, please bear with me as some of the following might seem long and boring and some of it might be redundant, but it's super important to go over it because we got to get the best understanding of who Frederick was both on a personal level and on a professional level. So we dug up a lot of reports from the National Archives of Australia, and the information contained within those reports shed a ton of light on him. So first, I want to go over some information found on some investigators' reports. So the following notes and information comes from a preliminary conversation between an investigator and Frederick's dad, Guido Valentich. So... Take some of the following with a pinch of salt, since this is information that's coming directly from his dad. So, Frederick was attending lectures for commercial pilot meteorology. These lectures were conducted at Essendon Airport on Tuesday nights and from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturday afternoons at Moorabbin Airfield. He did not know the organization or lecture, he meaning Frederick's dad. On Friday night, October 20th, 1978, Frederick had retired at about 10.30 p.m., and on Saturday morning, October 21st, he had eaten a light breakfast of orange juice, cereal, and coffee prior to going to work at Mooney Ponds. He would have finished work at 12 p.m. and driven to Moorabbin to attend the lectures at 1 p.m., probably without having eaten any lunch. The lectures were to finish at 5 p.m., and he considers that Frederick would have eaten some takeaway food from a McDonald's hamburger shop near Moorabbin, as this was his normal practice. He recalled that Frederick was in normal good spirits on Saturday morning. Frederick was a blood donor and gave blood at the Citibank on Tuesday, October 17th. Regarding his recent employment, he had worked at the Army Disposals for the last three weeks. Prior to that, he had worked at GMH Foundry for three and a half months and did his commercial license course for 5.6 months. Frederick had no problems at home. Frederick was in the Air Training Corps as a cadet and then as an instructor. He applied for a position as a radio tech in the, in the Royal Australian Air Force in about 1976, but he was not successful. Frederick always had the idea that some people wanted to stop him from succeeding, so he didn't discuss flying or intentions with anyone. He just wanted to get through and surprise everyone by showing them that he could actually do it. 
Frederick was a firm believer in UFOs. He had saved articles and information on UFOs. He read Chariot of the Gods and other books and went to see movies on the subject. His interest started when he was at school about six years ago. His belief had been strengthened recently when he was allowed to see RAAF's confidential files on UFOs at East Sale and at Laverton. He wouldn't discuss these details with his family as they were confidential. I mean, allegedly. His mother saw a UFO one night. She called Fred and he saw it too. It was a large light, 10 times larger than a star, was stationary for a while and then moved off at great speed. This happened about eight months ago. His father, Guido Valentich, eventually became convinced that UFOs existed. Frederick worried about attack from UFOs and what they could do. His father had told them that there was nothing they could do and so there was no point in worrying. His father is unsure about what Rhonda Rushton, who was Frederick's girlfriend, had said about them going out on Saturday night, October 21st, 1978. He knows Fred was going to be home and thinks something about her statement is fishy, but doesn't know what. Fred's memory was good for important matters, but he sometimes overlooked unimportant things. So I want to just talk about what this was that I'm reading from. It's actually a, a, an investigator's note. As this investigator was talking to Guido's dad, he took down all these notes, and I wanted to read out all the important notes about what his dad said. So the next investigator's note I want to go over is information given from Rhonda Rushton, who was Fred's girlfriend. So the following was provided directly from Rhonda to investigators. Miss Rhonda Rushton of 3 Bradford Avenue, Preston, was a close friend of the pilot of the C-182L, Victor Hotel Delta Sierra Juliet, which has become missing on 21st of October, 1978. She visited the regional office and agreed to assist in the investigation concerning the aircraft and the possible actions taken by the pilot. Miss Rushton stated that she was just 17 years of age and that she worked at the Night Owl Pharmacy of 743A Gilbert Road Reservoir. She advised she last saw Fred Valentich on Friday night, 20th of October, 1978, at about 9 p.m., after he had finished work at the Army Disposals at 139 Puckle Street, Mooney Ponds. In their conversation, it became evident to her that he had forgotten he said he would take her out on Saturday night. The fourth coming flight to Mar to King Island was discussed, and together they evolved the schedule of departure. Morabin, 1600, land King Island, 1730, pick up crayfish, leave at 1800, land at Morabin at 1930. As it was a good 20-minute drive from the airport to Preston, she suggested Valentich put his good clothes in which to take her out in his car when he left home early on Saturday. Since the aircraft went missing, she had seen the car at Morabin and was aware that no clothes were in it. From her experience, Valentich was probably wearing a tricolored brown and white jumper and brown slacks, his usual flying clothing, and she believed he would have carried with him a blue, short raincoat, very similar to those worn by RAAF personnel, as this was his good luck coat, his words. Discussing possible movements of Valentich during the day, she believed he would have left home without having breakfast, gone to work, not eaten lunch, then gone to the tutorial classes for his commercial pilot's license at Morabin, and stayed there, as she was now aware, until about 1700. 
Most probably the pilot went to McDonald's takeaway food store near Southland on the Nepian Highway to purchase food. She believed he would have ordered, quote, two Big Macs, two cheeseburgers, a filet of fish, and some chips, and most probably would have drank a carton of Coca-Cola. Are we sure this guy isn't American? Miss Rushton said Valentich was a, quote, big eater, and that he always ate slowly, and she believed he would have driven to the beach and sat in his car facing the sea while eating. Asked concerning Valentich's drinking habit, she stated he had never had more than two alcoholic drinks, usually beer, and after these he remained on soft drink. She then volunteered up the information that Valentich, quote, wasn't himself Friday night. That usually he is cheerful and outwardly very happy, but underneath on Friday he was not quite in the spirit of things. To her knowledge, his health was good, he didn't have a cold or other minor physical ailment, and so far he was aware he was not taking any self-medication for such complaints. The only thing she could offer was that he was taking... What the fuck is that? This is an old typewritten letter, and I can't understand this word. Some kind of capsule for a facial... Rash? Facial rash, and that he was not to partake of dairy products. Concerning the flight of 21st of October 1978, Valentich had not discussed it with her to any degree, but she was now aware that he had discussed it with her mother, apparently while waiting for her at some previous time. The gist of the conversation had been that he had earlier intended to take his father on the flight, that he was, quote, scared of the water, her words, that the plane is an old one, his words. Miss Rushton was aware her boyfriend had made the flight Robin to King Island before, but she was uncertain if he had flown the route that night. One strange thing that had occurred a week earlier, they were in the habit of celebrating the monthly anniversary of their meeting, and for the fifth anniversary, Valentich had decided to give her a friendship ring. Although he was well aware of the date of the anniversary, which was 20th of October, Despite her protestations, he had insisted on giving it to her on the 13th of October. He apparently had told his friends of his intent to give her the ring. She had no explanation for his action. So this is kind of a red flag that's popping up. She's telling him, she's telling the investigator that Frederick Valentich gave her uh, a gift a week before their actual anniversary. Man, so, what does the friendship ring mean? I mean, if... It's just like a ring. I'm, I'm not asking you to marry me. It's just Chabotu. like you're my girlfriend, be my girlfriend kind of ring, I, I guess. Oh, okay. Yeah. Asked had she flown with Valentich before. She said she had many times, but never at night. One notable flight had been in a Cessna aircraft to Newcastle about eight to ten weeks ago. Originally, four other passengers were to have been at Morabin at 0400 hours, but they had not shown up by 0600 hours, and Valentich had gone without them. The flight to Newcastle had been uneventful, but they had to fly over solid cloud for about half an hour. They had found a hole and descended through it. She considered that as a flight plan had to be submitted at Bankstown for the return flight to Morabin, Valentich had flown to Bankstown and entered the Sydney restricted zone as, as told to do so by Sydney, end quote. Valentich had experienced difficulty landing the aircraft and had to make several attempts. The reason was that the control column was locked. 
Valentich had uh, had sweated profusely in this situation, such that she had to use his handkerchief to mop up his brow to prevent the sweat blurring his vision. She stated that he always sweated when something unexpected or a little out of the ordinary occurred, and she was aware of the change in her boyfriend's voice when these situations arose. Other flights she had made with Valentich were from Robin to Essendon and back to various routes, sightseeing the city's prominent features. She said she was impressed by what Valentich knew of aircraft and that she considered him to be a, quote, very good pilot, end quote. However, she was aware of some unusual habits he had while flying. These concerned the use of the radio. She was aware he usually clicked the microphone button after transmitting and that he never put it back in the rack but left the microphone on his lap somewhere because of his leg motions it was sometimes activated. He also had the habit of polishing or rubbing the microphone on his jumper sleeve before using it. She stated Valentich had long legs and that after a period of time, it was his habit to release the seat and to push it rearward, which again sometimes operated the microphone on his lap. She was of the opinion that the metallic noise mentioned in the newspaper could have been the seat sliding rearward with the microphone transmitting. Miss Rushton had no knowledge of how Valentich used the engine to fly when asked. She then said she considered he was, quote, usually overcautious, end quote, that he likes to think things well ahead and believe that he would have entered the aircraft wearing the life jacket. She said Valentich always had a plan to cover possible emergencies. She had frequently been told when flying that, quote, if anything goes wrong, look for a straight road or a long paddock without fences, end quote, which were Valentich's words. She said Valentich always thought before he acted, albeit rapidly, he never acted instinctively. The matter of unidentified flying objects and the subject of such media coverage was raised. She advised that when out driving in the Dandenong range, Ranges on Sunday, the 15th of October, 1978, Valentich had, had said to her, quote, If a UFO landed in front, of a, in front of me now, I would go in it, but never without you, end quote. It's fucking romantic, man. Other subjects had been discussed during the drive, mainly of social interest, but Valentich had commented to some length on the subject of, quote, everybody is out to grab money. There is not enough left for everybody. People would have to starve, end quote. Miss Rushton was aware Valentich had clippings on UFOs, but she didn't consider him an avid collector, but just with an average interest on the subject. The reference to a landing UFO on 15th of October was his only reference to the subject on that day, and on other occasions, such references have been very short and never in any depth. Asked concerning his personality, Miss Rushton said Valentich held problems, quote, in the back of his mind, end quote, and that he held them on a list, and when he had worked out a solution, he mentally crossed it off. He had lied to her very soon after their first meeting that he had passed his meteorology subject for his commercial license, and after four months he admitted to his lie and that he was repeating the subject. She said he had no one to talk to about his problems with, but she was aware he had long talks with a Robert Barnes about flying and flying problems. Miss Rushton was thanked for her assistance. Signed, J.C. Sandercock, Investigator. So furthermore, um, further into the packet of investigators notes during a discussion with one of Frederick's friends, his friend said the following, 
His general impression of Valentich's character was that he is not prone to hasty decisions or panic. He always stops and thinks about the situation before taking any action. They had once been lost in the bush together whilst on an air training corps camp, and Valentich had not been the slightest bit perturbed about it. Both he and Valentich believed in UFOs, but not to any fanatical extent. They had discussed UFOs and their beliefs were on the basis that if people on Earth are capable of sending space vehicles to Mars and the Moon, then why would inhabitants of another planet not be capable of the same thing? His friend was also sure that Frederick would have been wearing his life jacket on the trip to King Island. Valentich was not keen about flying over water, and if ever he had any choice in the matter, he would fly over land. This was because Valentich was not a good swimmer and would probably just give up if he had to come down in the water. His friend thought that some of the circumstances were a little strange. Valentich had arranged to pick up his girlfriend at 7.30pm to take her out, but he had also told his father that he would be home from flying at 10pm. Such a dual arrangement was very uncharacteristic of Valentich, yet there was absolutely no way he could pick up his girlfriend at 7.30pm. If ever he was going to be late for an appointment, he would advise those concerned by way of a phone call. His friend was also wondering what Valentich did with the time between finishing his lectures at Moraban at 1700 hours and taking off at 1820 hours. He thought that Valentich might have gone to McDonald's or some takeaway food, which he did on occasion. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Fred's professional history. The following comes from the records found in the National Archives of Australia regarding Frederick's background. So, born in 1958, in 1971, he began attending Keeler Heights High School, and in 1974, he left school at the end of Form 4, and I looked this up, it's probably about the equivalent of 10th grade in the U.S. He, was, he would have been about 16 years old at this time. In 1976, he applied to join the RAAF, but his test results indicated that he had very low scores, which were indicative of low IQ, fit for unskilled work only. Now, I think that's the biggest takeaway here, was that his test scores were very poor and an indicative of a low IQ. In 1977, he enrolled at RMIT, Electronics, Math, Physics, withdrew from RMIT in July, Student pilot's license issued on February 24th of 1977, soloed in June. Theory exam result passed basic aeronautical knowledge at third attempt on, I guess, August 11th of 1977. Flight test result passed restricted private pilot at second attempt in September. Restricted private pilot's license issued on September 23rd of 77 with 57 flying hours. Private pilot's license theory exam results passed on the second attempt. Met passed at first attempt. Aircraft performance and operation passed at fifth attempt. Air legislation passed at third attempt. Uh, commercial pilot's license theory exam results October 1977 stat and failed all five exams. In 1978, he passed private pilot's license navigation test flight at second attempt on the first, sorry, on the 19th of January 1978. Private pilot's area restriction lifted on January 27th of 1978 at 89 hours. 
Commercial Pilot's License Theory exam results in April of 1978, sat for and failed all five exams. Class 4 instrument writing was issued on May 11th, 1978 at 147 hours. Commercial Pilot's Theory exam results in July of 1978, sat for and failed three exams, did not sit in the others. July 1978, was involved in two incidents at 160 hours. One was penetration of Sydney control zone due to poor navigation. Warning letter was sent to him. Two, on two occasions deliberately flew into cloud. Prosecution was being considered. Aircraft Victor Hotel Delta Sierra Juliet and pilot disappeared on October 21st, 1978. Other points. Pilot's logbook was not found. At time of disappearance, he was working as a shop assistant, but devoting most of his energy to flying. As a boy, he had been an Air Training Corps cadet. In 1977, after he had started flying, he returned to the Corps as an unpaid civilian helper. He later was taken on with the rank of airman. He was well thought of by friends and acquaintances. He was determined to succeed as a pilot. He told everyone he had passed some commercial pilot's license theory exams. All right, we got to we got to talk about this. So when you're looking through this guy's record, he's the stuff that he is passing is he's passing on his second, his third, his fifth attempt at at these exams. Mm -hmm. So it kind of goes back to this this thing I was talking about where he was a square peg trying to jam himself into a round hole. To me, it's not looking like he was cut out to be a pilot in any way, shape, or form. But he was definitely determined to be one. Man. He was to determined, man. I, and you got to give him that. But these are just horrendous records. I I would yeah, not he, have been this... He's not really good at theory, right? No. And I, I, I'm seeing this, this low IQ thing come, come back. He's, it sounds to me like he's really trying, but he's just not getting it. So his records go on. He's he's basically getting C's, D's, and F's in every subject in school except for PE, physical education. Um, he was aptitude and psychologically tested on May on May twenty fourth of nineteen seventy six. He was only interested in being trained as a radio tech in the RAF. Scores on tests were very low, indicative of a low IQ. He failed all tests. He was considered fit for unskilled work only. Dossiers kept for two years. His has been destroyed. All right, man, I'm sorry about hogging the discussion for so long, man. Why don't you start by talking about the first theory and his disappearance? All right. So the first theory we're going to talk about is the UFO alien interception theory. In the book Strange Skies by author Jeremy Clark, he argues that the most of the conventional theories about the fate of Frederick Valentich do not have much in the way of supporting evidence. The following is an ex excerpt from his book Strange Skies, Pilot Encounters with UFOs. Quote, According to well-regarded Australian UFO investigator, Paul Norman, Frederick Valentich was not the only person who reported a strange object over and near Bass Strait that day at night. Researchers have found over 50 reported observations in that area, which occurred before, during and after his encounter. 
The best trade flap had been building up for, for over six weeks prior to the pilot disappearance. On October 21st, the date of the disappearance, several remarkable sightings took place. At 2 p.m. at Kari, King Island, an object resembling a huge golf ball sailed, sailed out of the one cloud in the otherwise cloudless sky. The object, one-fourth of the apparent size of the moon and between silvery and white in color, moved west at a slow rate of speed, heading seaward. Then it stopped and with the same measured pace returned to the cloud. Less than an hour later, two identical cigar-shaped UFOs joined by two silver beams were seen flying from west to east over Victoria close to Bass Strait. Around 4.30. They took a long sweeping curve which took them northward before shooting away. Investigators for the Victoria UFO Research Society VUFORS interviewed witnesses all along the UFO's flight path, including some who had seen the objects which were silent at all times for almost directly underneath. Kind of weird, man. Yeah. They described them as three quarters the size of Boeing 747. The UFOs disappeared near Cape Outway, at the southernmost point of Victoria West Coast, off Bass Strait. The most remarkable sighting was captured on film at 6:47. A Melbourne man named Roy Manifold photographed the strange object surrounded by spray and mist shooting out of the water near the Cape Outway lighthouse. The 35mm camera in automatic sequencing at the time captured the image, a cloud-like form, on two of six pictures. The theories that it, that it was a cloud, Norman retorted, quote, The time interval between each photograph is confirmed by setting sun position. In the last picture, the so-called cloud is already 9 degrees into the shot. This means it would have been moving at 200 miles per hour. It is not possible for a cloud or puff of smoke to move at this speed on a calm day." End quote. A subsequent analysis by Ground Saucer Watch, an American group specializing in the study of alleged UFO photographs, mostly by computer enhancement techniques, led to the conclusion that, quote, the images represent a bona fide unknown flying object of moderate dimensions, apparently surrounded by cloud-like vapor exhaust residue." End quote. UFO researcher Richard F. Hines, however, suspects tampering with at least one of the photographs, suggesting that, quote, the dark cloud image of frame 6 was somehow added after the exposure was made at Cape Outway. End quote. After examining the negative, Bill Tyndale, deputy picture editor of the Mel Melbourne newspaper, The Sun, declared, quote, The alleged UFO is just a dark gray blurry blob, end quote. All right, so let's, let's talk about this picture, man. What are your impressions of this picture? I got to say, man, I am not impressed by this picture at all. <laughs> And I don't, I don't see how anyone can look at this picture and think that that's a UFO. I don't know about you. Looks like like a ghost to me, man. More like a kind of. To me, it looks like somebody spilled a drop of coffee on an old photograph a drop or something. Of coffee. So it's just if 
you know, for the people out there who are not actually looking at this photo, it's a picture of the sunset and there's like a dark blob in the top right corner of the picture. And they're claim there's some people who are claiming that that's a photograph of a UFO coming out of the, out of the ocean. But I don't see that. It just looks like somebody spilled a drop of coffee or some shit on, on a, the photo. What about you? What do you think? Man, have, have you have you seen the cartoon Carlson? What? No. What's no. that? So it's it's about it's about um, a guy who had a motor on his on his back, like kind of like Inspector Gadget, but more uh -huh. like ch childish in a way. Uh -huh. So this image kind of reminds me of that guy. He, I don't know if it's relevant or not, but. <laughs> anyway, uh, but it, it it doesn't look like UFO to me. So I, I yeah, agree. it just it looks like something got smudged, J just like that guy said. Yeah, dark gray, dark gray, blurred, blur blurred blob. blob. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's a UFO. Um, there is another thing that I notice about this picture. It's claimed to have been taken on the same night as when Frederick Valentich disappeared. And Frederick would have been in the air at this time the, this photograph was taken, um, according to the claim. But there are a lot of clouds in the sky. And all the reports I read from when Frederick Valentich was actually flying, it was clear. It was supposed to be clear, so I'm not sure mm. what to make of it. I would not call the weather in this photograph clear. It's, I would say that's like half overcast. Good point. Yeah. All right, so we're going to talk about the next theory now. It's the graveyard spin theory. Nobody really knows for sure what Frederick was up to that night. It could have been as innocent as him wanting to log more flight hours under his belt, or perhaps he was on a mission to look for UFOs, as he was well known to be a big believer in them. His two conflicting stated reasons, one to pick up friends on King Island and the other to pick up crayfish, was, had both turned out to be untrue. In an article for the Skeptical Inquirer in 2013, written by James McGaha, a former U.S. Air Force pilot and astronomer, and author Joe Nickel, argued that Valentich's strong belief in UFOs led to his demise, but not in a way that UFO buffs would imagine. <clears throat> the article argues that perhaps his officially stated reasons for the flight were just a ruse, as his real reason for the flight was to look for UFOs. He wouldn't have wanted to admit this in any official capacity, and therefore just made up a more legitimate-sounding reason for his flight. They go on to state that Frederick, having seen four bright white lights above him that he himself admitted that he mistook for landing lights, realized that it was definitely not an aircraft. A computer search for the sky for that exact date, time, and place of Frederick's flight reveals that the four brightest points of light in the sky were Venus, Mars, Mercury, and the star Antares. The formation of these four celestial bodies would have formed a diamond shape, which he would have perceived as an alien craft. It's argued that he may have gone out that night with UFOs on his mind, become disoriented by what's known as a tilted horizon, and mistook his plane's own changes in direction as flying lights spinning around above him. 
To explain what the tilted horizon illusion is, it can happen when the sun goes down below the horizon, but part of the horizon is still illuminated. The imbalance of lighting can cause the horizon to appear tilted, so that the pilot will try to erroneously compensate for that by tilting the wings of the aircraft to what they perceive to be level with the horizon, but in reality, they're not level with the horizon, and the aircraft begins to circle, and ultimately into a downward spiral. The pilot may see his altitude falling on his instrument panel, and so to compensate for this, he or she will instinctively pull up in order to try to maintain altitude. However, if the wings aren't level with the horizon, all this will do is make their aircraft turn quicker. If it's not corrected, the pilot will continue to try to pull up as their aircraft begins to turn faster and faster, spiraling down towards the ground in a path similar to a corkscrew with increasing acceleration and increasing tightness in the turn. In the most critical moments when he should have been looking at his instrument panel to make sure that he was properly oriented in the sky, he may have been distracted by what he perceived to be some sort of alien spaceship sport spinning above him. Some argue that while distracted, Frederick ended up in what is known as a graveyard spiral, in which his plane ended up in a sideways turn, began to bleed altitude, and while trying to correct his loss in altitude, began to pull up on the controls, which only made the turn tighter and more accelerated, which added to the perceived speed of the object hovering above him, which distracted him further. The Cessna 182's fuel system is gravity-fed, and so the increase in g-forces with a consequent decrease in fuel flow would result in the engine running roughly, which Frederick reported to be happening while talking to ground control over the radio. At that point, the Cessna may have already been inverted, which would cause the same effect due to the lack of fuel flow from the gravity-fed fuel system. So as a side note, this exact fatal type of spin happened to John F. Kennedy Jr. when his plane crashed in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. Um, he became disoriented, and so this isn't unprecedented at all. Furthermore, in an air safety incident report of the incident, they note that at 7.12 and 30 seconds p.m., radio contact was lost with the aircraft. Since this, this aircraft had previously reported cruising at 4,500 feet, which was approximately the lowest level for continuous communication with Melbourne Flight Service in this area, this might have been indicative of him losing altitude. Alright, let's talk about suicide theory. Some assert that Frederick may have purposely crashed his plane somewhere in order to end his own life. He had just failed his flight exam for the umpteenth time. He may have been facing legal action against him for flying through a cloud bank and despite his determination to have a career in aviation, kept failing over and over. The following comes directly from the Aircraft Accident Investigation Summary Report found in the National Archives of Australia. So, the available evidence indicates that the pilot, Frederick Valentich, was rapidly running out of time. He had told his family, girlfriend, and associates that he had only one subject left to pass to gain his commercial pilot's license, and he was currently going to instructional classes twice a week to study that subject. His father was assisting him financially to obtain his commercial license. The names of the ground training organizations he was attending were not established. On two occasions, he sat for and failed all five commercial pilot's license subjects, and during July of 1978, sat for three commercial pilot's license subjects and failed them. He had... Per 
he had penetrated Sydney control zone during a flight in July of 1978. And just prior to this flight, he had received a counseling letter from the New South Wales region. Prior to this flight, Valentich had made known his intention to fly to King Island for some time, and it was generally believed by his family, girlfriend, and his immediate acquaintances that the purpose of the flight was to bring back, bring back crayfish. However, he told the operator and the Morabin briefing officer that the purpose of the flight was to bring back passengers. There was no evidence of any passengers at King Island waiting for him to pick up. Nor did he have any orders for crayfish other than one crayfish from a member of the Air Training Corps. He did not order crayfish from King Island prior to the flight, and as it happened at that time, no crayfish were even available at King Island. He told his girlfriend he would meet her at 19.30 hours, at a time which he could not possibly keep. He told his father he would be home after returning from King Island. He did not request aerodrome lighting at King Island for his arrival, but he was aware that King Island Flight Service had closed. It seems possible that he may not have had any intention of proceeding to King Island. His girlfriend has stated that he, perspire, he perspired profusely, and his voice changed in an unexpected or out-of-the-ordinary situation. It was particularly noticed while monitoring the recorded communications containing his detailed description of the other vehicle's maneuvers that his voice remained matter-of-fact and completely normal. If it had been the pilot's intention to disappear, a number of directions of travel were open to him to maintain communications for the period he did while operating below 5,000 feet. However, it's unlikely that such a document would have been available to him and his possible tracking directions would be limited to known coverage areas. Had the flight proceeded as planned and the aircraft did crash into the sea, it's most probable that wreckage would have been sighted. The aircraft disappeared without a trace and no wreckage was located or information received concerning the whereabouts of the aircraft and its occupant. It therefore is not possible to determine the cause of the disappearance, but it seems likely that the aircraft did not crash in the sea between Cape Otway and King Island. Okay, that, that last sentence there is pretty huge. According to this investigator, they think that it's unlikely that the plane crashed between Cape Otway and King Island. So where then? Yeah, that's the question. So... R. Barnes, who knew Frederick when he was a cadet in the Air Training Corps, wrote the following letter to investigator P. Graham. It's a little long, but I think it's extremely revealing. It begins like this. Dear Sir, in response to your request for a written report of my impression of Frederick Valentich, I've given the matter much thought and have attempted to set out the relevant facts, subsequent assessment, and comments in a logical sequence. I was first introduced to Fred about a year ago by squadron leader R.F. Grandy, who, like myself, is an Air Force reservist attached to squadron headquarters, Air Training Corps. Squadron leader Grandy had known Fred when he was a cadet in the Corps some years previously, and after he introduced Fred, he asked me to read a reference that he had prepared for Fred. I recall him saying that he thought that Fred was worthy of my assistance or advice I may give him. That evening, I spent over an hour with Fred. He explained that he was not accepted by RAAF aircrew and now wanted to pursue a civilian flying career. After that first meeting, he regularly attended squadron headquarters in a civilian capacity, working without pay or allowances until accepted into squadron staff as an airman. 
During that time, he was working in my section, and he showed a lot of enthusiasm for the work given him. He sat for all six CPL examinations early this year, and as he failed all of them, he asked if I would tutor him. Although reluctant at first because of my shortage of spare time, I agreed to assist him in navigation and aircraft performance. He became a regular Sunday afternoon visitor to my home, once bringing his young twin sisters and a couple of times his girlfriend, Miss Rhonda Rushton. On the basis of my involvement with Fred as briefly outlined above, my assessment of him is as follows. 1. He always demonstrated responsibility toward his study and other work given to him. I recall his careful supervision of his sisters in my home. He sometimes told me of his in-flight experiences, which indicated a possible attitude towards the command of an aircraft. 2. He was always friendly, neatly dressed, and was of sober habits. Whilst in my company, he rarely had more than one alcoholic drink in an evening. I never heard anyone comment adversely on his drinking habits. 3. As indicated above, he appeared to be enthusiastic about his w worth both at headquarters and in my home. He frequently spoke of getting an instrument rating and twice endorsements so that he could get a flying job as soon as he obtained his commercial pilot's license. 4. Knowing that he failed to gain selection for RAAF aircrew because he did not possess the required academic qualifications, I nevertheless thought that his academic record was reasonable, spelling accepted, it was poor. When working through navigation problems, I put his frequent mistakes down to impatience and the desire to get his exams over and done with. 5. He showed respect to those in authority, and only on one occasion can I recall him making a derogatory comment about any person. That was as a result of air traffic control at Moorabbin, raising an ASIR about the way in which he made an approach and landing at Moorabbin after a flight. He was quite annoyed and adamant that he had operated in accordance with the current ATIS. 6. Observing his personal discipline and from what he told me about the way he conducted himself in the air, I believe that he was developing a healthy flight discipline. As both flight discipline and airmanship are pet subjects of mine, I took, opportunity, I took every opportunity to advise him in that regard. 7. In summary, I would say that he was impressionable, a battler, and that he had the determination and stability to achieve his goal of commercial pilot. I must admit to extreme disappointment on hearing from you today that Fred did not pass the two exams that he had sat for in mid-year, not because he failed them, but because when I returned from holidays in mid-September, he rang me to say that he had passed the exams. Having read my comments in the above paragraphs, you will see that I must regard Fred's apparent dishonesty as being completely out of character. I now wonder if he was ashamed for not having passed the exams, possibly realizing that he would never get his CPL. Because everyone had formed the same high opinion of him, was he a good actor? Did he have a split personality? Could he have really been unstable? In view of this, together with his mysterious disappearance, is it in any way significant that on the Sunday following his exams, he and Rhonda bought two bottles of wine to my home to share that day because he said he, that he thought he had passed both exams. I declined because I was on reserve and said that we would drink them when he was told that he had passed. That was his last visit to my home. Did he know then that he had failed? Was the wine payment to me for my efforts?
giving Rhonda the friendship ring a week earlier than the anniversary, reportedly speaking calmly on the radio about a UFO, then reporting engine trouble, no lights, passengers or craze organized at King Island. I'm not asking myself if he has absconded with the aircraft or if it was a suicide flight that he had carefully planned for some time. I trust that the above information is acceptable and may in some way prove helpful to your investigation. Yours faithfully, R. Barnes. All right, man. Were you paying attention? What did you think of that? Has your has your opinion of Frederick Valentich changed? I mean, it's really interesting that he he failed the the exams, man. Because according to that guy, he had he had really good like work ethic and discipline yeah. and everything. It's it's really controversial to me that he he wasn't able to pass the the test. All right, man. Are you ready to go over our theories? Yeah, you start. All right, man. So, whew, let me get another sip of VB. <laughs> so, I think when it comes to my own thoughts about what happened to Frederick, the one scenario that I'm the least confident in is that a UFO shot him down or abducted him. Um, so, his dad stated on record that he believed that his son would be returned by the UFO once they were done with whatever it was that they, they wanted with him. But um, to me, that's just, that's a sad grieving father clinging on to a tiny shred of hope that his son might come back someday. Um, it's not to say that I don't believe in UFOs because I absolutely do. Um, and I believe that UFOs routinely fly in and out of our oceans and through our airspace. And, as to what they are and where they come from, that's a, a mystery for another another day. But when it comes to the idea that a UFO shot him down or just tractor beamed him up into their aircraft into their UFO, um, I think that idea is just ridiculous because there's nothing special about this guy or his aircraft. I mean, who am I to question our, our alien overlords? But I just don't see a reason why a UFO would would single out a Cessna 182L with some guy flying in it for like why why would an alien spaceship want to shoot down this guy who's just minding his own business flying in a Cessna? Um, yeah, it's, to me it's ridiculous. So I would give that theory less than a one percent chance to me. So the remaining two most popular theories, the one. The suicide theory and the graveyard theory, to me, both of those are more likely than an alien spaceship shooting him down. So at first glance, when I was going through this story, um, I thought that I had I had wrapped it up all perfectly into a neat little bow. And I thought that the graveyard spin theory was made the most sense to me at the time. Because as as you know, man, when I was younger, I was a I was a student pilot too, much like Frederick Valentich. Um I, I was I was flying. I've actually flown a Cessna 182L. Oh really? Yeah, I, I've flown them before. It's it's a very common aircraft. Everyone fucking learns in a Cessna. Um, I've flown the 152, the 172, and the 182. They're all pretty much the same aircraft. Um, the 152 is a two seater. The 172 and the 182 are four seats, but they all fly the same. They're the same shape. Um, the 182 has the biggest engine, though I believe. If I'm Man, this was, I haven't been in a cockpit since like 2007, so I'm going by memory here, but 
So initially, I thought that the the idea of him committing suicide was a little bit far-fetched too. Maybe not as far-fetched as the UFO theory, but I thought that it was more far-fetched than the, the graveyard spin theory. But once I found those documents from the Australian government, those original reports, it shed a lot of light on who he was. And I think that I think that Frederick got in over his head. He he started lying to cover up his own failures and his lies compounded on top of other lies that he was telling. And I think that at a certain point, his lies got too big for him to control. Um, his dad was paying for his flight, his flight instruction. And I got to say, it is not cheap to learn how to fly aircraft. I mean, when I was doing it, it was over a hundred dollars an hour in 2006 dollars. So it's not cheap. And for him to be consistently failing his exams over and over and over, um, it just looked, I think for him, it just was never going to happen. His dream of becoming a, a professional pilot was never going to happen. And um, I think the suicide theory is kind of neck and neck when it comes to the likelihood between the graveyard spin theory and the suicide theory. Um, I mean, if you think about it, he lied about his reasons to fly to King Island. Um, it was confirmed because he, he told two different stories and both of them were not true. So I just think, um, yeah, the other, the other thing that, that really stood out to me was his aptitude scores when he tried to join the Australian Air Force. It said that his his scores were indicative of a low IQ, and he was only qualified for low-skilled labor, let alone being a pilot. So, I mean, I, I just think he didn't re, he didn't adjust his expectations. He still had this dream of becoming this this pilot, even though he was only skilled he was only he was only fit for unskilled labor. So, I think that he he wove a web of lies that he could no longer escape from, and. I would give the suicide theory like 51% chance. It's neck and neck. The graveyard spin theory also makes a lot of sense. But now that I'm thinking about it, I think that he saw no way out. He he fa he was failing in his dream. His family was going to get was going to be disappointed in him. Um Yeah, dude. I I, I think that he flew off maybe in a slightly different direction. And I think that he, he, he nosed it down, killed himself. I think that's the, mo the most likely. The graveyard spin theory, where did you understand what the graveyard spin was and how it happened? I mean, it, not, 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 not in all the details because, you know, I'm not... A so picture, picture the, uh, uh, an airplane flying mm -hmm. straight and level with the horizon it's going to go straight pretty mm -hmm, much mm -hmm. if you're flying it properly it's going to go straight but if your wings are tilted a little bit your your aircraft is going to drift to the side you're tilting mm -hmm. but if you don't realize that your wings aren't level you're just going to think that you're you're nosing down a little bit so you're going to pull up and when you pull up on the on the controls all you're going to do is make you make yourself turn faster Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so that's the idea he's looking up. So in a Cessna 182, the wings are above the pilot. 
which makes it really convenient if you want to go sightseeing or you want an easy aircraft to learn in because when the wings are above you, you have a good view of the ground, mm-hmm. like where you're landing mm-hmm. or where you, where you are geographically. It's very nice, but you can't see much above you. So what you, you can do is you can rock your wings back and forth if you need to get a good look up, up above, above you. Mm-hmm. You can rock your wings back and forth. And I think that it's possible he was doing that. He's rocking his wings back and forth, but he didn't he didn't return his wings to be perfectly level when he was doing that. And he was he was focused on whatever was above him, maybe the stars or the planets that he mistook for a UFO. And as his aircraft was turning, he to him, it looked like those lights were above him turning, but mm-hmm. it was really him turning. Did you get what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's also a very, very likely scenario but i can't get i can't get over this this fact that he kept failing over and over in his dream and i think and he was lying he was spinning this this web of lies to all the people he knew about his progress when he was making zero progress he was telling everyone he was like one or two courses away from getting his commercial pilot's license when he was nowhere even near near getting his license so yeah, man, I, I think um, graveyard spin and suicide are both very plausible, plausible scenarios for me. But if I had to choose one, I think I would go with the suicide. I think that he might have killed himself because he had no way out of this this web of lies that he spun for himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Now it's my turn, I guess, right? Yeah, man. So, basically, man, I have, I, I have a couple of thoughts about, uh, about your ideas and uh, about all this situation. First of all, I want to start with a maybe weird point, maybe really weird point, and I don't want to like sound ridiculous and stuff. But if, like, you called them galactic overlords, or how did you call oh, our them? alien overlords? Our alien overlords would like to pick one guy. I mean, no disrespect, man, but I, I think maybe they they could have picked this one. If they want if they would want to stay unnoticed, you know? Because in the end they haven't found the, the aircraft. They haven't found his aircraft. I mean if they would like really like to stay unnoticed and if they like kind right. of were looking after the guy like oh maybe it's our guy you know he's like his life is in big trouble all these reports coming up his tests are not good you know (laughs) let uh, they might might have thought like everyone will think that yeah this guy or you just think it's convenient he failed the test yeah (laughs) he failed the test we're just gonna abduct this shitty pilot so no one suspects that it was us yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) That, that, that that's what that's what i think about and then Everyone will be like, oh, he he wasn't a good pilot. He failed all the tests, you know. And they're like, yes. <laughs> that <laughs> exactly. Was, that was our plan all along. Excellent. I mean, it, I, I'm not like for this hypothesis 100%. I'm just saying, you know, that... It's, okay, uh, you it's bring up a good point. Convenient target for the abduction. And like I said, who am I to question our alien overlords? They're wiser beyond our wildest imagination, so... Mm-hmm. So that's about abduction. I'm 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 not saying it's like 100%, but maybe I'll give it like one. 
Yeah. Two, one and a half or something, you know? <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. The, to continue with the, uh, with the, our hypothesis, with the, our theories, the graveyard spin, I mean, for me, it's kind of, even after you explain it, it's, it's not so easy to comprehend because I never been in the cockpit. So I, I'm, you know, right. I, I don't know much about it, but I mean, it sounds really reasonable. But what I thought about while we were doing this episode is like, and while listening to your points, what if it was some wild combination of the um, this theory and suicide? What what if like he? So you mean he accidentally committed suicide? Is that what you mean? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean, <laughs> that, that would be that would be. It's not suicide if it was an accident. I don't, yeah, I don't see how it could be both. That that would be too much. But let let me try to explain the point. You know. Okay. So basically, why I I found it kind of a bit weird that the the suicide theory. Because it's weird that he would report to the freaking the air control. What, what was the okay about about the aliens and everything and what, well, whatever. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that it. Let's let's assume that it was suicide. Yes. The reason why I think he would do that is he would make up this story that would absolve him of any responsibility for his own demise. Mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. it, it could. It you know <clears throat> it was like a cover story for his family um, to not be disappointed in him for mm -hmm. for doing this. It, it was a UFO. A UFO shot me down. You know, I, I think that that was probably the reason he did that. If it was suicide, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. he could go down as being the the famous guy who got shot down by a UFO instead of some bonehead who went out over the ocean to kill himself. You know, because like I think um, I think the I think the whole reason he would have killed himself was because he was so ashamed and disappointed in himself, and he he didn't want to put his family through any further disappointment. Um, his dad was paying for his 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 flight school, so and it's very expensive. You think he was thinking about his legacy at the point? Like, I think so. Yeah, the, or you know, his family. He probably didn't want his family to know that he did it on purpose. It was kind of his last letter. Or something. Uh, the, yeah, Informal. these are just my thoughts. Um, yeah, but you know the thing that that also makes me think about maybe it was the graveyard spin theory. He's not a good pilot. Not a good pilot. I could see him getting distracted by. Okay, go. Sorry, I'm yeah. sorry. If you if if you go back to graveyard spin theory, like I'm, I'll ask you, what do you think? are the um, the chances of getting control back getting the control of the airplane back well it's easy to gain to regain control from that if you realize what's happening uh -huh. like he should have been looking at his instrument panel it's it's piloting 101 especially at night you have to rely on your instrument panel very like a lot mm -hmm, when you're mm -hmm. flying during the day it's different because you you know where you are you can see you can see where your plane is in relation to everything else. But when you're flying at night, which was, this was just after sunset. So I think that if, if the, if the graveyard spin was the, was the actual thing that happened here, I think that 
he would have had limited visibility mm-hmm. while he's trying to look up at something above his aircraft. And like I said, the Cessna 182, the wings are mounted above the pilot. So if you're looking to the side, you can't see shit because the wings are blocking your view. So mm-hmm. what you do is you rock your wings back and forth if you need to look up a little bit to see what's above you. Or you can lean over over the cockpit dashboard and try to look up out the top of the windshield, the front windshield. You can do that. But these planes are not designed for looking above you. They're mm-hmm. more designed for looking at what's below you. So I could see him maybe just being distracted by what he perceives to be a UFO above him. And he's he's not looking at his instrument panel. He's he's his horizon indicator is sideways, but he's not noticing this. He's mm-hmm. just noticing mm-hmm. the his nose going down. So he's pulling up on the controls and all that's doing is tightening his spin. Okay. And that's that's how the graveyard spin works. Is you don't realize that that's what's happening until it's too late and you're blam dead. So, but it's still possible to regain control if you know what's what the hell's going on. If there. you if you if you realize that you're doing it, mm-hmm. if you realize that you're doing it soon enough, but we I will mean, never know. If he did, if he if he didn't know that that's what was happening. He would have just hit the water without even realizing it. But we gotta take into account that he 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 actually has a a lot of experience, right? Flying. Yeah, yeah, more than so me. He, so he is an experienced, uh, kind of experienced. Yeah, which uh, even though he had pilot. this, he he allegedly had this low IQ. He had a lot of experience, not a lot of experience, but, but he had enough. Mm-hmm. He had enough to know better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my theory then. That maybe, and this is kind of like it's gonna sound kind of weird. Maybe he he got into this uh, spin and he co- contacted the the air traffic control. Air, air traffic control, and he started like saying the the aliens and thing is going on, and then and then maybe he realized that these were like not aliens it's just like he got into like graveyard spin and then it's kind of wild but maybe then the his old situation kind of flashed before before his eyes like shit now i'm like in, in a really bad situation you know man so maybe then he decided not to <laughs> <laughs> You should you should fucking hear yourself right now, man. You think it's wild? That that's that's man. You have a PhD and you're coming up with this shit, man. You think it's too much? You think that he's he realized that oh it's not a UFO, it's it's <laughs> no, no, just no. my bad. And I'm so humiliated, I'm just gonna not, fucking not, kill myself. No, 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 no. Not just not just by that. Well, I, there's no coming back from this. I'm gonna kill myself. No, so. I'm not saying that he might have been just humiliated by the fact that he mistook the graveyard spin for the for the aliens. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of weird, right? <laughs> What the fuck, man? <laughs> that 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 would be a weird weird combination of the event if he would be like 
Okay, now I'm not gonna. So what are you saying then? I'm a little confused. Yeah. Me, so me you're too. he's in this graveyard spin, according to you, and then he regains control. No, no, no. He decides not to. He it, decides it, it, not it, to regain control and do the the suicide thing. Why? I don't know. It it just somehow li lined up so <laughs> in, my, in, in my head like that. I mean, so okay, so he he just realizes that he's in this graveyard spin, but he's like, ah, eh, while while I'm while I'm down here, I might as well just kill myself. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you think it's too much? <laughs> oh my god, man! I hope you're joking. <laughs> I mean, I, I I was just trying to combine all the uh, like both of these. Like I know, the, man, but come on, we, we've got to think the, about what what's most likely. What's Occam's razor? What's Occam's razor in this in this case? I I think that's less likely than an alien spaceship shooting him down. It's even more combining those two in the way that you described. I think that's less likely than an. I mean, that's. I think an alien spaceship shooting alien him spaceship down is, is more like is more likely than, than him, him deciding just, like. Spur of the moment. Oh, I'm just going to kill myself. <laughs> Not the spur of the moment. Remember, we've got all this, like, you you, you, you got all these reasons for him to do that. And you said probably he did suicide. You gave him 51%. Yeah. Yeah. I, I It's so, I mean, I, I was flip-flopping back and forth between graveyard spin and suicide. Um, but to me, man, there's just so much, so many reasons for him to kill himself. Because and, he created all these like yeah he he wove he wove this web of lies and he was hiding it from his friends his family his colleagues and at at, at some point the truth was going to come out and I think that he might have seen this as his only way out. So you think him saying to the traffic air traffic control it's like a, a way to change his legacy somehow? Yeah, to to reduce the humiliation or the shame. Um, yeah, <laughs> it sounds more, reasonable. it sounds, yeah, I, I think that's mo the most likely. And then a close number two it, to me is graveyard spin. I just think that he, I think he should have known better. What Even if the, he had this low, what IQ. about the fact that they never found his plane? Another thing that points to suicide to me is if he was flying in a different direction than he was supposed to. And all these search efforts were, were looking in the wrong direction. They, no wonder they didn't find anything from his from his plane. Do you know what I mean? What if he flew? So he was flying like south to King Island. Don't, but don't you think they would have noticed that? Or no, not necessarily, because they. Were, I don't think he was within radar contact. I think he was only within uh, radio contact. I don't uh, think he was being tracked on radar. It was just a short flight from you know offshore. I think that he. Maybe he was supposed to fly south, but he flew more southwest and crashed his plane somewhere in there. Just flew with until he had no more fuel. Just blam. Yeah, really tragic story then, man. I could be wrong, but I think that's, to me, the most likely. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here, man? Do you have anything to add? Mm, no, I think I'm good. All right, man. Do you have anything to apologize for? Any shout-outs or clarifications? Um, yeah, man. Let me just clarify one thing for this episode. You know, my theory about uh, Frederick Valentich being like 
not recovering, uh, deciding not to recover his plane. It's kind of wild. I was trying to combine two theories in one to make it like... Yeah, it made it sound like he just recovered from a graveyard spin and then he just, after that, he just decided to kill himself out of embarrassment. That would be like too much. Not 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 out of embarrassment only. Combining all the factors, you know, it just okay. like so. So I'm, what do you what do you think then? What, you're, you you want to make a clarification here, but what are you trying to clarify? Um, what do you think? Yeah, I was trying to clarify that maybe this theory is a little bit too wild. Like, yeah, I was trying to be so graveyard cr- cr- graveyard spin or suicide man. We're trying to be creative. Pick a side. We're at war here. If you gotta pick one, yeah. Uh, graveyard spin. All right, you wanna be a fucking rebel, huh? Go against the grain here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I wanna give a shout out to our unofficial sponsor of tonight's episode, VB Victoria Bitter. It's no Fosters, but it's okay. All right, man. I think it's time to get out of here. Like sands through the hourglass, so too are the minutes of our podcast. But don't fret, dear listener. We'll be back again to breathe new life into an old mystery next time. Помните, ребята, истина прячется в тени. Вместе мы найдем ее. This is Super Mystery Bros. Dude, uh, first sip of VB, VB, <laughs> as uh, the Australians say. It's all right. It's yeah, it's okay. It's definitely better than the shit you get downstairs at the fucking Wowo. Like any convenience store here, it's just. got some interesting aftertaste i'm trying to think what what this tastes like to me because i've had a beer like this that it tastes very similar to this but i'm trying to think of what it is i i swear to god it it brings me back to when i was like 18 or 19 and i was drinking this cheap ass fucking beer all the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah but but it's like it's not bad it's yeah it just I'm trying to think what the fuck beer it was. I'm I'm telling you, it makes me remember the the time then me and my friends we went out, we bought like the the strongest beer that we could possibly find. And the aftertaste is kind of a little bit metallic, you know, in a way. Oh yeah, dude, this fucking malt liquor. Is it malt liquor? No, it, it's it, like it's like hobo beer, dude. Like homeless people fucking drink it. <laughs> 
no, 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 no. It was it, it was like a normal beer, but it was it got like nine nine percent. Oh, yeah. dude, yeah, that's like malt liquor, probably. Like in America, that's like it's like the cheapest fucking beer, and it's high alcohol content. So all the homeless people drink it out of like a paper bag. You know, they like put it in like the paper bag, and they just drink it just to get wasted and shit. I think my first beer was when I was 17. And now at my age, dude, I like, I just like, um, having like one to three beers. That's my, that's my idea of a good time now. So. Yeah. Just don't forget the, my birthday last year. Shit. <laughs> oh, dude, that was when I broke my phone. Yeah. That my, my DD car just like blew right past me and I was like running after it. Fucking had my cell phone in my right hand, and I I tripped over a um bicycle, right? Yeah, it was what are the yellow the yellow bikes on the sidewalk called? Mobike or Opo? it's not mobile. Opo. Opo. Uh, I remember it was one of the fucking yellow ones, and I tripped, fell, and I broke my fall with my right hand, and my my phone was my iPhone was in it, and then bam, good fucking times, man. <laughs> entire screen shattered. <laughs> 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 